0: Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I said it's so good to be with you here at the South Street Campus. It's been several months actually since I've been able to join you in worship and it is so good to be back. Um, and in those months there have been a lot of things going on in the Scavato house. Um, and in fact, I brought a picture of one of the most exciting things. Um, this is our new uh, family member. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, This is Luca David Scavato. He is exactly four weeks today, Um, and I brought two pictures. I could have brought a hundred, but I brought two. They're going to show the second one. Um, Yeah, isn't he a cutie? Um, I thought I might just talk about him the whole time, but I figured you might want to hear about Jesus as well. Um, Some of you might know this, uh, that Luca was born actually 10 weeks early. Um, He was a little bit excited to meet his family and meet his church family and join the world. Um, And so he is currently living in the NICU over at CDH. um, But we are excited to bring him home soon enough. And uh, everyone is doing as well as can be. And so we're grateful to God for this blessing on our lives. Um, you know, it's funny, as we get to know the newest member of our family, the, the biggest debate in the Scavato house is who our new son looks like more, me or Judy. Um, and it, it's been interesting. It feels like it goes back and forth a little bit, which I didn't realize was the thing that happened. But early on, the consensus was that he looked more like her than he did me. And I have to be honest and confess to you today that that drove me crazy. I know some dads are like, oh, I love how much our kids look like their mom, but I am selfish, I have an ego, and I wanted a mini version of me out in the world, and I am struggling today. And so if we talk after service, you don't have to mean this, you can lie right to my face, I'm giving you permission in church, just tell me that he looks like me and I'll feel better about myself. So thank you for that, that's just where I'm at right now. It's true, I I think, not just for for newborns, but for all of us, that that physical changes, physical transformations matter. We've been amazed, even over the course of these four weeks, just to see how much he's grown, how much he's changed, to see him become more alert and more aware of what is going on around him. And if every parent we talk to is correct, it's only going to go faster from here. Maybe for you, you've noticed different changes in your life. Maybe over the course of the pandemic, you went a while without seeing your kids or your grandkids, and then when you did see them, you were startled by how much they had changed or how much they had grown. For others, maybe seeing an old friend serves as a physical reminder of just how faithful and how long they've been in your life. Just this week, I got a haircut, and I was alarmed by the presence of more than a few gray hairs, something that I am currently in deep denial about. (laughs) Physical changes, physical transformations matter, because there's always meaning behind them. Today, we're continuing our series, Following the King, this exploration of the book of Mark and the kingdom that Jesus establishes in it. We've been working through this book for a while now. In fact, if you were with us last week, maybe you remember that we looked at this central passage, this turning point in the book of Mark, where Peter declares that, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one that we have been waiting on to establish this kingdom. And in response, Jesus says, this is the kind of king that I'm going to be, that I will be killed, rejected, and left alone. And if you want to be a part of what I am doing, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and lose your life in order to find it. Today, our story picks up from there, from this confusing and challenging and costly message. And from there, we see something similar to what I've noticed in these past four weeks and what we noticed throughout our lives a physical transformation, and one for us that truly does matter, even all these years later. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, and so if you have a Bible with you or your Mark journal, go ahead and turn to that. We're going to pick up uh, starting in verse 2 of Mark chapter 9. It says this, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, there's so much to get to in this story, a story that I know that many of us have maybe heard before, but a story that we don't always know what to do with. And so today there are a few things that I want to point out to you as we consider what it means to follow the king. The first thing that I want to show you is the presence of glory, the presence of glory. I don't know if any of you are like this, but one of Judy's favorite things to watch on TV are those uh, home improvement shows, where, you know, over over the course of an hour or so, they take this rundown home, this home that's completely outdated, and they turn them into these beautiful, picture-perfect homes. And so we'll watch these shows, and there's like a thousand of them, and they're all the same to me, but she loves them, and, and it's great and all, but my biggest complaint is how easy they make it look. Over the course of an hour, they do all these things, and they never show how terrible it actually is to work on your house. And meanwhile, we've been painting our nursery for like three weeks, and I still don't know if we're done yet. It's terrible. <laughs> but at the end of the, sh- at the, end of the show, they-, they show you this finished product after all the work that went into it, and they compare it to the original. It's my favorite part of this, where, where on one side it was a- kind of this outdated, falling apart, and then on the other side it's this physical transformation where it's new, and it's shiny, and it's beautiful transformed beyond recognition. I kept thinking about that as I thought about what we see here in this story. This transformation, this transfiguration of Jesus. Look again with me to verses 2 and 3 of this story. It says that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, As no one on earth could bleach them. Now, again, think back to what just happened in our story. Try to imagine, if you can, what it must have been like for the disciples to hear Jesus' message that he came not to come as a conquering hero, but he came to be killed and betrayed and left alone, and that they must pick up their cross and deny themselves if they want to be a part of this kingdom. That everything you thought was going to happen is not what it seems, that he did not come to bring victory over Rome, but rather that he came to die. Now, none of this would have made any sense to the to those disciples that day. And then look at verse two again with me now. Notice this, that six days passed and nothing happened. That for six days, his disciples had to sit in that truth. Now, some of you know this. Mark's gospel is known as the immediate gospel, where one thing happens right after another that he almost never uses measures of time. But here, he does. That for six days, they sat in that uncertainty, in that confusion, in that anxiety, the unknown of what it means to follow Jesus when what he's saying doesn't make any sense. Maybe, for some of you you know that feeling too. Maybe you know the feeling of being in the midst of your own six days of confusion, of trying to follow Jesus when what he's saying or what he's doing or what he's not doing doesn't make any sense to you. How am I supposed to trust that I can follow Jesus when my loved ones are in pain, when my friends, when my kids, when my grandkids are struggling emotionally or mentally or spiritually? How can I trust that I can follow Jesus? How can I trust that he knows what he's doing in our country and in our world when it seems like there's division and uncertainty everywhere you look? Do I really trust that he knows what he's doing? Do I really believe what I say I believe? Now, we don't know, of course, but I bet that the disciples were asking themselves some questions, too. We've given up everything to follow this guy. We've given up our jobs and our families and our futures and our reputations. What if it's all for nothing? What if we've been deceived? Can I really trust that I can follow Jesus? What I, love the, what I love about the story is what it shows us in the midst of this, that oftentimes it is in the midst of questioning or confusion or concern that God leads us up in a time of quiet on top of a mountain. That the glory of God shows up. That over and over the scriptures teach us that God's silence is not the same as his stillness. That even if you are in the midst of six days of confusion, the seventh day is coming. That if you trust in his word and follow and believe what he has for you, he will show up again and again in ways that you never thought possible. See, this is what happens in this story, that that Jesus gives Peter and James and John his inner circle, a glimpse into his true godly nature. Scripture tells us that he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured being metamorpho, where we get our word metamorphosis. It's the idea of being completely changed from one thing to another, to being unrecognizable, and his clothes become whiter than bleach. In other words, that God's glory is greater than even words can describe. Matthew's account tells us that his face shone like the sun. Now, this is a reference back to uh, the book of Daniel, actually. In Daniel chapter 10, uh, verse 6, Daniel sees this vision of this messiah he says his body was like barrel and his face was like the appearance of lightning his eyes like flaming torches this is a clear reference to his godliness his purity and his power and this is different than anything that we've seen so far to this point in the book of mark we've seen a lot so far we've seen jesus confound experts multiply food walk on water heal the sick we've seen countless miracles But we've never seen an existing miracle be put on pause. And that's what's happening here. This is Jesus temporarily lifting the veil, revealing his true self, revealing his godliness, revealing his power, revealing his glory, showing his disciples that they are not just in the presence of their friend or in the presence of their teacher, but that they are in the presence of God. That even though what he was saying didn't make sense to them, they were not wrong when they declared that he is the Christ. That Jesus' appearance as a common, ordinary man, that was the miracle. His humility is the miracle. His willingness to take on flesh is the miracle. And behind it is glory and power and authority. That as John chapter 1 tells us, he is the light that gives light to everyone. And he has come into the world. We see this word uh, transfigured, a a word that's only used a few times in the New Testament, including one that you may be familiar with in Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be, and here's the word, transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is is the command that we have been given, and right here, Jesus gives us a picture of what that might look like. And we are to be transformed, transfigured, to undergo a metamorphosis, not of the body, but of the heart, of the mind, of the soul. That over time, we should be changing to the point that we are unrecognizable from the person that we used to be in the same way that those houses on TV are transformed and you wouldn't even recognize them if you hadn't watched the beginning of the episode. That over time, people should see less of us and more of God's glory. So, here's the question for you and for me today. What is it that God wants to transform in your heart? What is it that he is working on in your mind? Where have you been resisting his call? From who have you been withholding love? What fruit of the Spirit do you need God's presence and God's glory and God's power to transform and change you? Church, let us be this kind of people. People that recognize that to be a follower of Jesus is a journey and not just a destination that always seeks to grow in love and in service and in generosity and in our desire to become more like him, to show his glory to the world. That brings us to our uh, second part of our story, which is the purpose of glory. The purpose of glory. I I wonder for you, um, if you can think of a time in your life where you saw something or experienced something that showed you God's power or his glory or his goodness. For some of us, maybe you remember a time where you were out in nature, out in the world, and being a part of God's creation and just exploring what is around you and looking and seeing the vastness of it all showed you a little bit about God's goodness and creativity and power. For others, and I can relate to this one, that they point towards the the birth of a child, or they point towards a relationship in their life that has been just unconditional love. And they see that as a thing that showed them the love of God. For me, there's always been something about being by water, and in particular, hearing and watching the waves of the ocean come in over and over again. Never quite the same, but always consistent. There's something about that that always points me to and reminds me of the grace that God has for us. Never quite the same, but always consistent. What about for you? Can you think of a time, can you think of an experience that you've had that have said, I cannot explain this other than this is God speaking to me? This is what we see in the next part of our story where we're seeing just a a little bit, just a a piece, just a a, a shadow, a a witness of the glory of God. As our story goes from something that's already kind of strange to something that's just completely wild. Let's read the next couple of verses, uh, starting in verse 4. It says, There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make 3 tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Okay. So what do we make of this? Where not only does Jesus show up and Jesus transfigure himself and Jesus is radiating light beyond description, but then suddenly two people show up on the scene who haven't been alive in hundreds of years. And not only that, but why these two people in particular? Why Moses And Elijah. What is the significance of these two being the ones that show up on this mountaintop? And how did the disciples even know it was Moses and Elijah? Like, did Jesus do the introductions? I have questions about that, but we don't know the answer to that one. What we do know is that not only were Moses these incredibly influential and important people in the Jewish faith, they were also representative of something more that Moses, as the one who received the law from God on a mountaintop, the one who delivered the people of God out of slavery, and Elijah, who had his own mountaintop experience with God when he was in his darkest moment, represented the law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament. They They represented this entire system of belief, the law and the prophets, the story of the Old Testament, and the hope that one day a Savior, a Messiah, Would come. And here they are, and here he is together. Luke's account of this story gives a detail that Mark's doesn't. Uh, Look with me briefly just to Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 30 and 31. It says this: And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, notice that word departure. We might think that that's talking about Jesus' death, and in a way it is, but the Greek word used there is the word for exodus. Exodus, talking to Moses. The idea is that Jesus is talking to Elijah and talking to Moses, and he's saying, you thought your exodus was cool. Watch what I'm about to do. Elijah, you had victory over Jezebel's priests, but I'm going to have victory over the power they drew from. Moses, you delivered my people from Egypt. I'm going to deliver them from sin. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this idea, uh, Matthew 5. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And here are the two men that represent that idea, the law and the prophets. And they're talking about the way in which it will be fulfilled, how he will finish what they started, that he will come through on the promises that they looked forward to. Now, this is where we have to consider what it must have been like for a Jewish person in the first century to experience this or to read about this. That they would recognize this interaction as Moses and Elijah giving testimony to, being witness of, the glory of God. Now, by the way, this isn't the uh, point of the story, but just think about this for just a minute. This is Moses first time standing in the promised land. Think about that. How crazy is that? How gracious is God? How loving is he to give this gift to Moses after his death, to allow him to breathe the air, to feel the dirt, to look around and experience the land promised to his people, the land that he led them to. What a powerful reminder for us. That not only do our identities exist beyond death, and not only is there life after the grave and hope beyond what we see, but the promise that, lo- that God's love and his grace extend there too. That he is always doing more than we can ever imagine. I love Peter's reaction uh, in verses 5 and 6. I can picture Peter telling the story, and he says, Let us make tents, one for you and Moses and Elijah, and then I can picture him adding this detail. For he did not know what to say. Basically, I don't know what, I don't know what was going on. I just blurted something out. A reminder that you don't always have to say something if you don't know what to say. <laughs> now, for some of us, this might be a little confusing. Why would they need tents? Like, this isn't a camping trip. What's going on with that? but the tent that peter is talking about isn't for sleeping but is rather an old testament custom where the people would build these tabernacles or or tents and for god's presence to reside in as a way of creating sacred space so this is peter actually on the right track saying this is clearly a holy moment and so we want to honor that and do that well but here's the question that we have yet to answer what is the purpose of glory Why did Jesus do this in the first place? Why did he transfigure himself? Why did they bring Moses and Elijah in as witnesses of glory? See, it wasn't just to encourage and reassure his disciples, although I'm sure that it did. It wasn't just to give those of us reading these words today hope, although it should. There's more to it. To understand that, let me show you a previous mountaintop experience that Moses had in the book of Exodus. This is Exodus 33 verses 20 to 23. This is God speaking to Moses on top of a mountain. He says, "But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live." And the Lord said, "Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face." shall not be seen. In other words, this is God telling Moses that you can't handle my glory. It is too much for you. Again, this is Moses. Think about that. This is one of the most important people to ever live. Someone who spoke with and argued with and reasoned with God over and over again. And yet he was not worthy of seeing God's face. But right here, Here is Moses by God's power and might and glory back on this earth, looking at, talking to, communing with Jesus, able to see the glory of God right in the face. This, friends, this is the gospel. This is a picture of the gospel that it is Jesus and only him that bridges the divide between God's God's glory and power and might and our sin and brokenness. This display of glory is proof that Jesus, at the same time fully man and fully God, is able to show us God's character, to show us his goodness, to show us his greatness, that we can see God through him. This is glory as Moses has never seen before, and it is the thing that sets our faith apart from anything else in the world, that God in all of his power and glory, made himself known to us, made himself one of us, and offered us a way out of our brokenness. Can you imagine what they must have been thinking that day? For Moses and for Elijah, can you imagine the awe and the thankfulness and the emotion of being able to see the one that you longed for, The one that you pointed people towards. And not only that, but to have him see you right back. To have him look you in the face. To talk to you as a friend. Church, this is the same thing that is true for us. That it is our hope that we can not only see who God is, but that right now, in your seat today, he sees you That not for a moment of your life have you been alone or forgotten. That never will your fear or your fatigue or your failures outweigh his faithfulness. That as Romans 8 tells us, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what? The glory that is to be revealed to us. This is the truth of this transfiguration story. This is the purpose of of glory. This is the hope of the gospel. So, we've seen the presence of glory, the purpose of glory, and then finally we'll see the person of glory. Let me finish the story for you. This is uh, verse 7 and 8. It says this. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So, in case this story wasn't weird and crazy and unbelievable enough for you, on top of Jesus radiating light and Moses and Elijah showing up, on top of all of that, the presence of the Father makes himself known in two ways, in a voice and in a cloud. Now, those of you that know your Old Testament history well, you know that God often used a cloud to indicate his presence, especially throughout the Exodus story. We also know that both Moses and Elijah heard the voice of God on their own mountaintop experiences. Now, the Father's words are a clear parallel to something we saw all the way back in Mark chapter 1, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Mark 1 verse 11 says this, A voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, notice the difference of that, too. That first one was indicated as a a, uh, statement to Jesus. This is a a command about Jesus. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, stop trying to rebuke and resist the words of your teacher. In other words, Israel, people of God, stop looking to the law and the prophets and start looking to him alone. In other words, church, stop looking to the ways of the world for your hope and your joy and your satisfaction and your truth. And trust in and rely on him alone. And this is what's so crazy and wild about this story that in any other circumstance, for two people as important as Moses and Elijah to appear on this earth would have been the focus and the miracle of the story. But they are not the main characters, they're gone in three verses. And that is the point. They are not the main characters, their purpose. And the purpose that we see about the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, is to testify and direct and point us towards Christ. That the law and the prophets, the history of God and his people is important and life-giving and necessary, but it is necessary to direct us to the Savior, the one that this command is about. Listen to him. This is one of the foundations of our faith that continues today, that we do not look to saints or to angels or to ancestors or to laws or to sacrifices to connect us to God. We look to Christ alone. That only Jesus can reconcile us with the Father. That only Jesus can cover the cost of our sin. That only Jesus could do what he did on the cross and have power over the enemy. Now, I know for most of us, this is not new. You know your theology. You know that it's only Jesus. It's right here in Mark's gospel. Of course, we don't need saints. Of course, we don't need other gods. Of course, we don't need new age ideas. We have the real thing, right? But for how many of us, if we're being completely honest today, how often do we live as if something else is true? How often do we put our hope in our own abilities or talents or strengths? How often do we entrust our happiness to other people in the way that they treat us and the things that they say about us and the way that we measure up with them? How often do we say, God, I trust you with my eternity, I trust you with my soul, but I'm not quite sure about my finances? And God is saying, Listen to him. Listen. To what he has to say to you. Listen to his commands. Notice that at the end of this story, there's only one person left standing. It's Jesus. Jesus alone can give you hope, can give you healing, can give you restoration. He alone can bring you satisfaction in a way that nothing else in this world can. And so today, as we close our time together, can I ask you just a really simple question? This question is, is not some deep theological, you don't need a, a seminary degree, you don't need to study through the scriptures to answer it. It's actually a question. If you're a parent, you've probably asked a thousand times yourself: Are you listening? Right now, today, in this season of your life, are you listening? To Jesus. Not in the past have you listened, not do you know a lot of things about Jesus, but are you listening to what he has to say to you? Are your ears, is your heart, is your soul open to his commands and his corrections and his truth and his encouragement? And here's how you know. Here's how you know if you're listening to Jesus, because the more you listen to Jesus, the less you'll try to control things. The more you listen to Jesus, the more you'll see people that you disagree with in love and not fear. The more you listen to Jesus, the less you'll see your time or your talents or your resources as your own to hold on to, and the more you'll see them as gods to use. The more you listen to Jesus, the more you'll trust that no matter what happens, You can rest in the palm of his hand because you know that glory is ahead of you. It has been promised to you. It has been revealed to you as well. Are you, am I, are we as a church listening? Let's listen to what he has to say to us today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and we just want to listen to what your Spirit has to say. Father, speak to us. God, give us direction. Father, my prayer, even as we close with one more song, that, that during this time that our ears and our hearts would be attentive to what you have to say. Father, as we go out today, as we begin a new week, Would we remember to listen to your voice? Would we remember to see those the way that you see them? To see ourselves the way that you see us? Father, speak to us now. We ask this in your name.